Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of child endangerment and murder, as well as discussions of childhood sexual trauma. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. When you have a kid, you're never able to just get in and out. No quick errands, no popping down to the shop for a quick snack. Don't even think about the mall or local big box store. It's even worse when your kid's a runner, the kind who likes to sprint, screaming down the aisles, reveling in the joy of rebellion. Your frustration flares in these moments. You love your child, but at this brief second, some tiny, ugly part of you hates them. So maybe you roll your eyes, look away, get distracted. When you look back down, your kid is gone. The doors to the store are locked. Codes sound over the intercom. Minutes tick by, torturously slow, and yet not fast enough. An employee nervously approaches his boss, holding a small blue jacket. Your little one's jacket. It was on the floor of the bathroom, he says. But the child is nowhere to be found. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just stream Haunted Places free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we examine an urban legend with a complicated history, steeped in the paranoid fears of suburban parents. The family of child abduction urban legends that the attempted abduction and the mutilated boy comes from preys on natural parental anxieties, while occasionally filtering them through the more ugly and bigoted side of paranoia. It is the story of what happens when you lose sight of your son in a public place, and the next time he turns up, he's been hacked to pieces by an unknown individual. Ever since 1994, when a child goes missing in a large store, mall, amusement park, hospital, or museum, a code Adam will be called over the intercom. Employees immediately lock or block the doors, collect a description of the child, and begin a systemized search of the building. Often, it's nothing. A little boy hiding in a clothes rack, or a little girl playing the newest video game demo, joyfully oblivious. But sometimes, it is as bad as we fear. The child is gone, perhaps carried out the door before we realized. 
or they're left in the store bathroom, shivering, frightened, barely alive after an ordeal they will struggle with for the rest of their lives. Frankie would be the first to admit she wasn't a great mom. Christopher was a sweet kid, but he was kind of smarter than her. It was awesome. It was also exhausting. She and her husband James were trying to be very bohemian with Christopher's upbringing. Montessori preschool, affirmative parenting, lots of emotional self-awareness. They could afford for her to stay home, so she stayed home. The good thing was, it was making him independent and precocious. The bad thing was, it was making him independent and precocious. Frankie couldn't keep up. The mall was the worst. She tried her very best to avoid it as much as possible. But the little stinker, whom she loved very much, really just kept growing. So they headed to the land of cell phone kiosks and Orange Juliuses in search of some kind of miniature jeans and button-down combo. He needed a daddy and me look for the investment firm's company picnic. Frankie didn't want to be one of those parents who put their kids on a leash, but she was sorely tempted. Christopher liked to explore. When he explored, he often forgot his name, and when he forgot his name, it was very difficult to find him. It wasn't enough to ask him to hold her hand. She had to hold his wrist. Not tight enough to hurt him, but enough to remind him that they needed to be safe. He wanted to go to the Lego store, but she told him they needed to take care of errands first. Christopher pointed out that Dad had people to do errands for him. Frankie told him that was because Dad didn't know how to do errands and that Christopher needed to learn now. The little boy pouted, but he kept walking beside her. They entered the toddler boutique. Frankie would be very glad when Christopher was big enough to shop outside the cutesy sections. If she had to overhear one more conversation about how early was too early to let your kids use screens, she was going to eviscerate the nearest oversized stuffed animal and force-feed its cotton insides to the offending parent. She needed both hands to search the racks, so she glared at the judgy moms in the corner and handed Christopher her phone. She told him to hold onto her pant leg and not let go. He nodded, his eyes already glazed as cartoons danced across the phone screen. The judgy moms were still whispering. Not too loudly, but loud enough to be heard with some deniability. How very sad that people don't spend time with their kids anymore. That they expect Netflix to do the parenting for them. Frankie sighed, telling herself to breathe. She wasn't a regular mom. She was a cool mom. She didn't need this, and Christopher didn't need this either. She stepped over to another rack, shielding him and most of her from view. Or at least it should have. She couldn't feel his little hand pull on her pants anymore. She couldn't hear the soft music of his show bleeding through his headphones. There was no little head of red-brown hair leaning against her upper leg. Christopher was gone. All pride disappeared in an instant. She called his name, flicking the hangers to the side, hoping he was just playing hide-and-seek. She called to the judgy moms, who quickly agreed to help. The blonde one took charge, telling the clerk that she needed to initiate a code Adam. 
When the clerk protested, saying that she should at least look around the store first, the other woman glared. Turns out she hated insubordination more than screens. The brunette didn't even bother to argue with the clerk, stepping around behind the counter and hitting every button on the store's phone until she reached security. Frankie and the brunette rushed out of the store to meet the mustering mall cops, still calling Christopher's name. The mall was a wash of colors and sounds, all too loud and too confusing. The intercom blared, door shut. Guards gathered from every corner of the mall. It should have made Frankie feel better, but all she could see were the featureless faces of the other shoppers, collapsed in a blur of frustration and resentment. They peered in from every rack and display, some looking down from the upper levels. Frankie knew she shouldn't have cared what they thought of her, but focusing on a little bit of social embarrassment was the only thing keeping her from crying in the middle of the mall hallway. She tried so hard to be the chill parent, to show Christopher that the world wasn't a scary place, that it would generally take care of him as long as he took care of it. Had she doomed him? No, she couldn't do that right now. She had to focus on finding him. The self-hatred could come later. She looked around her environment, trying to see the world the way her son saw it. The Lego store wasn't in sight, and she wasn't sure if he had the spatial reasoning to get around the corner and into another wing of the building on his own. She had no idea what the benchmarks were for a four-year-old when it came to being lost in a crowded mall. Why hadn't she read more of those books? Frankie realized very suddenly that Christopher had her phone. She ran to the blonde mom, who had moved from judgy to fully concerned and comforting, and asked for her cell. Frankie didn't breathe as it rang. Christopher was a smart kid. He knew how to answer her phone. He frequently picked up calls from James's clients if he didn't get there first. Come on, baby, she thought. Come on, world. It went to voicemail. Frankie had never hated her own voice so much. She hung up and dialed again, this time listening for her ringtone. A sunny little tune she'd kept, only because she couldn't figure out how to change it. It was up the escalator somewhere. She sprinted for the moving staircase. A guard called after her to wait. She didn't care. She mounted the steps two at a time, yanking herself up and onto the second level, her eyes darting from corner to corner, ears listening for the sound. Finally, her eyes fell on the source. The trash can was ringing. She tore the bag apart. The ring got louder, louder. Finally, she found the phone. A massive crack spiderwebbed across the screen, allowing eerie blue light to leak through. But where was Christopher? The long white walkways on either side of them were empty now as the crowds gathered at the entrances, wondering what was going on. There was no movement on the second level, aside from one door at the end of a short hall, a little white figure enclosed by a circle of blue, the men's bathroom. She inhaled, quick and deep, then rushed through the swinging door. Coming up, 
we find Christopher, but someone else finds him too. Now, back to the story. Christopher was a smart kid. Everyone said so. His mom tended to get upset at him when he went exploring, so he let her lead him around even though he totally knew where he was going. Thank you very much. His mom tended to get nervous at the mall, so he tried to reassure her. She could be fun when they were at home. She seemed like she was going to be busy for a while. So Christopher hit the lock button on her phone and headed off to do some exploring. He wandered out into the main thoroughfare, taking no notice of the swirling crowd of adults around him. They took no notice of him, after all. Why should he worry about them? One of his favorite parts of the mall was the mountain carousel, right in front of the baby store, even though he wasn't a baby. The carousel carried Christopher up, up, up to the next floor of the mall, like jumping levels in Super Mario. He wondered if there was a game store around here. That would be dope. He was looking left and right when he felt something on the back of his neck, like a cold wind you pretended to ignore because you'd already told your mom you didn't need a jacket. Christopher turned his head slowly. There was a man watching him, about 15 feet away, broad and tall, with thick Harry Potter glasses. His clothes were crisp, like Christopher's dad. But while his dad was warm and soft, like a teddy bear in a tuxedo, this man was not. He was rough and sharp, like a pair of scissors and sandpaper. And he was standing between Christopher and the escalator. Christopher had been taught what to do if he was lost. He had never been lost before, and he didn't feel particularly lost now, just scared. He knew where his mom was, she never went far when he was wandering, but the scissor and sandpaper man was between them. Christopher was the kind of kid who liked to talk to strangers. He was curious and cute, so people generally liked answering his questions or waving back when he waved at the grocery store. The scissor and sandpaper man wasn't that kind of stranger. This was the kind of stranger that made his mother hold his hand tighter when they were on a crowded subway. The kind his dad made cold eye contact with across the playground, fighting a battle Christopher had never understood until this moment. He was supposed to stand still and wait for help. He knew that, or look for an adult. But the only adult he saw was the scissor and sandpaper man. He began backing up into a hallway, keeping his eyes on the man, somehow sure that if he looked away, he would disappear and appear behind him. But Christopher couldn't watch the man and see where his own feet were going at the same time. He tripped and fell backwards, hard, hard enough to bring tears to his eyes, to make him want to yell for his mother. But he wasn't a baby, and she wasn't close enough to help him before the scissor and sandpaper man reached him. He was still coming, filling the hallway like a mountain. His mother's phone had slid forward on the tile, straight into the path of his pursuer. Christopher jumped up, finally tearing his eyes from the man and running for the gray swinging door. He slid into the bathroom, barely able to keep himself from falling again, as his Velcro sneakers failed to find purchase on the imitation marble. 
under the counter was too obvious a hiding place. It had to be the toilets then. He crashed into the stall farthest from the door. Christopher hopped up onto the toilet, squatting, holding his knees close to his chest as he heard the bathroom door swing one more time. Footsteps followed. He could see the scissor and sandpaper man through the gap in the door. Christopher wasn't a baby, but he wanted his mom and his dad and his cartoons. He wanted to go home. He tried to stay quiet, but his breath was starting to catch as tears slid down his cheeks. The footsteps got closer. A stall door at the end of the line opened. He wasn't a baby. He wasn't. Another stall door opened. Closer this time. He wasn't a baby. He wasn't. Another stall door opened. Right beside him. He wasn't a baby. He wasn't. His stall door swung open. A woman was standing there. Her face wan. Her brown eyes frightened. Her soft hair was disheveled, escaping her ponytail in coffee-colored strands. Christopher knew that tired look anywhere. Mommy, he ran to her. Frankie enveloped her son in a hug, crying, muttering, baby, 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 over and over and over. Christopher let her say it, let himself hug her with all his might. As she lifted him up into her arms and turned back towards the door, he saw it was still swinging. The scissor and sandpaper man had vanished back into the mall. The Code Adam procedures were developed by Walmart in 1994 in reaction to the murder of six-year-old Adam Walsh, who was abducted from a Sears department store in a Florida mall on July 27, 1981. Walsh's mother left him playing with an Atari in the electronics department and headed a few aisles over in search of a lamp. When she returned to the spot, he was gone. A security guard told her that an argument had broken out between some older boys over who could use the Atari next, and they'd been told to leave the store. Two weeks later, Adam's severed head was found in a drainage canal near Vero Beach, Florida. The rest of his remains were never recovered. Convicted serial killer Otis Toole claimed responsibility for Adam's murder, but the case was never prosecuted after key evidence was misplaced by the police. Though Toole eventually recanted his confession, Adams' case was closed on December 16, 2008, when the authorities announced they believed Toole was responsible. Adams' father, John Walsh, has become an icon in victims' rights advocacy. While he's popularly known as the host of America's Most Wanted, Walsh also took action lobbying for the creation of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the passage of the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. The law established a national database of convicted child molesters and increased penalties for sexual and violent offenses against minors. It also established precedent for offenders to be prosecuted for conspiring to commit child predation. Adam Walsh's case was a watershed moment in American culture, and while it resulted in many important safeguards, it also partially prompted the development of the attempted abduction and the mutilated boy urban legends. 
In the attempted abduction, the Code Adam procedures prevent the kidnapper from leaving the location with the child, so they alter the victim's appearance in a bathroom. This includes a change of clothes, but also serious alterations to the victim's hair, often both a shaving of the head and, oddly, the use of a wig. Luckily, the criminal forgets to change the child's shoes. A store employee recognizes the footwear, and they're prevented from leaving. The more cynical version involves the child disappearing, with police and security at a loss. The parents are then paid off to prevent the crime from hurting the store's business. The mutilated boy is the even darker counterpart to the attempted abduction. The initial Code Adam details are the same, but the little boy is found in a pool of blood, having been castrated by a group of older boys as part of a gang initiation rite. Statistically speaking, very few of the child abductions reported annually in the United States are committed by strangers. Most child abductions are carried out by a family member or acquaintance. A Department of Justice report found that the number of lethal, stereotypical kidnappings or abductions by someone the child didn't know well went from 40% in 1997 to just 8% in 2011. This is likely a result of the increasing role of technology in children's lives. GPS and cell phone data were used to solve two-thirds of the kidnappings in the report. These crimes are, thankfully, staggeringly rare. But it only takes one chilling instance to panic the caregiver in all of us. The attempted abduction and the mutilated boy make vague anxieties concrete and give parents a specific thing or person to fear. It externalizes the threat of a kidnapper, so one doesn't have to look at acquaintances or family members with suspicion. Letting your child wander may be the least of your worries if your social circle contains a wolf in sheep's clothing. Some kids are runners, others wander off. Parenthood is often a series of mistakes we hope we all learn and recover from. We tell these stories to try to stave off that fact, to give us a concrete threat to fear and plan for. But sometimes, the line between an innocent mistake and a tragedy is dumb luck. Let's hope the odds are in your favor. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Haunted Places free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>